If you have enjoyed sports over the years, you've likely heard the expression not said necessarily as some sort of fixed axiom, but as something that may apply to a certain team at a given point. The best defense is a good offense. You might have heard that. Uh, This adage is found in many places outside of the world of sports as well. You might hear it in the business world. You might hear it with regards to the military or military world or military history. You might hear it with regards to the legal world. In the sports world, for instance, a good offense can do a lot of things. It can siphon another team's morale. It could keep in football the other team's defense um, you know, off, off balance, keep them on the field for a while. It can make the other team have to play a style of offense that they're not used to playing because they get down points. In the business world, if you have a certain company or a corporation and they just keep excelling in customer service, they keep you know, buying patents that could potentially threaten their company or their product, in that case, their offense is a good defense. In the military world, there might be cases where a military is going to be preemptive and proactive and it's striking against enemy opposition, and in that case, it forms a kind of good defense because the opposition's forces can't really mount, say, a counteroffensive. As you get into the text of Jude, and where we've been studying, as Jude is telling Christians to contend for the faith, we're reminded that in the midst of apostasy, Jude is telling Christians, you don't hunker down. You don't batten down the hatches and just wait for the storm to pass. The spiritual forecast has been given, and the clouds of apostasy and the threat of rain, if you will, is going to be there throughout the entirety of this present age. Take, for instance, 2 Peter. Chapter 2, Peter told the church, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. He goes on a little bit later on in verse 2, and he says, and many will follow their destructive ways. So the storm clouds of apostasy, they loom over the present age. They are going to be there. And Jude is basically telling the church, you don't hunker down. You don't batten down the hatches. You go on the offense. And going on the offense is a good defense for Christians and the local church. But it's not the best defense. See, in the Christian world, in the life of a Christian, the best defense is not a good offense. The best defense is God. And we're going to see the benefits of being on the offense. And Judas calling Christians, be on the offense. You're going to see it. Reach out. Practice spiritual disciplines in your own life. Build up the local church. Do these things. And make sure you're not just doing that. Christianity is just not a self-improvement project where you become the end-all and be-all of your spiritual life. Making sure you're doing your spiritual disciplines. Making sure you're growing personally. It's not just about that. You have to be building up believers. But even it goes beyond the church. Reach out to those who have been infected or affected by a apostate teaching in one way or another. Go on the offensive, but then you're going to see that he basically tells Christians, as dangerous as a mission as this is, and it is dangerous, your defense is the Lord. And he's the one who's ultimately going to preserve you from not going down the path that you are trying to pull others away from. So there's a lot to be encouraged by in this text. And then fittingly, in light of that, Jude ends with giving God the glory that he deserves. So really in the text before us, there's so much that is applicable for our Christian lives in this moment, wherever you are. First, just to create a little bit of context, um, last week, you might remember, we saw the offense to which Christians are called to. Jude originally began to unpack this for us in verse 17 and 18. Remember, he told Christians to remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 17. 
And he said that they said there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. So in other words, Jude was saying, as you go on the offensive, one of the first things I want you to remember is to remember. Remember the words of the apostles. Remember scripture. Let the word of God be hidden in your heart, to use language from Psalm 119. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, to use language from Colossians 3. Remember the words of the apostles. Remember that they said, for instance, these kind of things would happen. You're not to be surprised when apostasy comes. Not to be surprised at all. The apostle said, it's going to happen. You're not to be, to be surprised when people mock Christianity. Don't be surprised. The apostle said it was going to happen. Don't be surprised when it happens outside the church. Don't be surprised when it happens inside the church. The apostle said it was going to happen. Don't be surprised when there are those who wear the name of Christ, yet walk according to their own ungodly lust. Don't be surprised. The apostles said it was going to happen. So the first way you go on the offensive is you remember the word of the apostles, you remember the word of Scripture, remember the word of Christ. But then we saw last week that Christians, as we noted, both individually and corporately, are to be doing some things as they participate in keeping themselves in the love of God. They're not the ultimate means or reason for the keeping, but Christians are to do certain things. We saw three things. Christians are to be building themselves up in their most holy faith. We saw from Acts 20, verse 32, that that involves the word of God, which is able to build us up. We saw it involves using our spiritual gifts corporately and building one another up. We saw that Christians are to be praying in the Holy Spirit. We saw that Christians are to be looking to the day of Christ. That's the offense that we saw personally and then corporately in the local church. But now we see it goes beyond that. The end all and be all of Christian life is not just spiritual disciplines or what happens in the four walls of a local church. There needs to be outreach. Hands need to be reaching out. Contending for the faith involves that. And we're going to see that. And that's where we come to now. We look at verses 22 and 23 where we read, And on some have compassion, making a distinction. We said that older manuscripts say who are doubting. So on some have compassion who are doubting, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Older manuscripts at this point add, and on some have mercy with fear, hating the garment defiled by the flesh. So I want you to see something here generally. As we work through this text, you're essentially seeing three things. Jude is telling Christians that they should be involved in reaching out to others who in some way or another have been affected by wrong thinking and wrong teaching, and Christians are going to need at least three things. Christians are going to need compassion. Christians are going to need courage. And Christians, as they continue to do this, they're they're going to have to exercise carefulness. So if you're going to reach out to other people with the gospel, to those who've been affected by apostate teaching, you need compassion. Talk about that in a moment. You need carefulness, and you need courage. You need those three things. Let's work through the text together. There's essentially um, three groups here. So if you look at the older manuscripts, it turns out that there's three groups that Jude is directing Christians to reach out towards. It's just a sampling. It's not a representation of every single person who could be reached out to. It's a sampling. Some manuscript bodies have two groups. Some manuscript bodies have three groups. I tried to put that in the bulletin so you could see both right there. I think there's good evidence to suggest that three groups are mentioned here when you add the older manuscripts. Not to mention... We know from studying Jude that Jude loves what? Triads, right? We've seen, I think by one counting, 12 up until this point in 21 verses. So Jude loves to use triads. So if all things were equal, I'd lean towards the triad. But either way, at the end of the day, Jude is telling Christians, you need to reach out to people. 
And when you do, you're going to need to be careful. You're going to need to exercise courage and compassion. So let's look at the first group. The first group that he's calling people to reach out to are those essentially who are doubting truth as a result of false teaching from one place or another. We see that in verse 22. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, or as the older manuscripts render it, who are doubting. So that's the first group here. Jude is telling Christians, look, there are going to be people who are going to be affected by false teaching in one way or another, and they're going to come to a place of doubt. They're not going to have sure convictions about the false teaching, but then that false teaching is going to rock their convictions about the scriptures. And they're going to be kind of in a confused state, kind of pulled on both sides. And Judah's telling the Christians, you are to show compassion. You don't just write them off and say, really? Not, not, you've, been, you've been around for years and you're confused about this? Oh, forget it. I'm moving on. We're not talking anymore. I don't need to talk to you. No, that's not what a Christian is supposed to do. You exercise mercy. The word here for compassion is a Greek verb that's a word that essentially can be translated as mercy. You show mercy. It's what Christians are expected to do. Remember in uh, Matthew uh, chapter 5, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You might remember in the parable of the unforgiven servant, uh, this is what the servant of the king failed to show his servant who owed him 100 denarii, even though the king had forgiven him of a debt of 10,000 talents which he couldn't pay. So he was forgiven this massive debt, but then he didn't show compassion, he didn't show mercy to somebody who had a much smaller debt to him. And remember that the king called him a wicked servant, Matthew 18.32, and he said, Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? So this posture of compassion that we're to exercise to other people is driven by the compassion that God has for us. The mercy that we are to show to other people is driven by the mercy that God has shown to us. Whenever you're tempted not to be merciful, just think about how merciful and compassionate God has been towards you. And as that river flows towards you, by God's grace, may you be a vessel by which that mercy flows towards others. I think this posture, by the way, would also reflect our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, His mercy. The example that came to my mind as I was meditating on this and trying to think, what's a good example of the Lord Jesus Christ showing mercy to someone who's doubting? One of my favorite passages in Scripture. I've got a lot of them, but one of them is Matthew 11. In Matthew 11, you might remember John had been put in prison, John the Baptist, and he was doubting at that point. So, so sort of confused, in a confused state. Maybe he was wondering, like, I'm in prison? Am I, am I, is, is this, what, what's going on? Am I supposed to be here? Is Jesus the one? So he sends two disciples to Jesus to essentially ask, are you the coming one? Are you the one who was to come? Or should we wait for another? Remember that? Matthew 11. Jesus tells the disciples of John to go and basically tell John the things that they have seen and heard. And then he gives some examples of that. In Matthew 11, verse 5, we read, The blind see, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. He reached out to John with compassion. He didn't say, you're the forerunner. You're the one who said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't say, I'm done with John. Forget John. You shouldn't be doubting. You shouldn't be confused. You should be a strong man of conviction in this moment. Instead, in mercy... He says, tell them what you've seen. All these markers of the Messiah coming. And then, by the way, he even goes on, just as an aside, if you remember what Jesus does after that, he basically defends John before the crowd, so precious. 
defends him, tells the crowd, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? And basically defends John and says, he's not that. Among men that have been, among men that have been born to women, there are none greater than John the Baptist. And he goes on and talks about the kingdom and makes comparisons there, but what compassion. You might even say in, in the case of Thomas, right? Thomas, affectionately referred to by some as what? Doubting Thomas, which we would prefer believing Thomas because he was doubting for like a week or like a week and a few days and he was believing Thomas after that. But when he had doubts and when he's made such strong statements about not believing that Christ had resurrected unless he saw the print of the nails in his hands, unless he put his hands into the print of his nails and into the print in the the marks of Jesus' hands and uh, into his side, in great mercy and compassion, Jesus Christ showed up there in the upper room, and revealed himself to him. So let me encourage you, Christians, as you think about people in your life who are maybe in a state of confusion, and maybe they've been there for a little while as well, and they're like, I'm just not sure. One of the things that you want to do is you want to be a vessel of compassion and mercy as you reach out to them with the gospel. So that's the first group. If you're going to contend for the faith, you're finding people who are confused. Maybe some people who are in this local church and aren't anymore. Maybe some people in the family, whatever it might be. And you're going to be a loving vessel of patience and mercy and compassion in the midst of their confusion. That's group one. Group two we see in the beginning of uh, verse 23. These are those who have been essentially more affected by false teaching and wrong thinking in one way or another. So they're kind of entrenched. If you look at the beginning of verse 23, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Now, with fear uh, might not be there in, you know, the majority of the older manuscripts, so that that portion there is, is debatable. But the idea is nonetheless the same, and you get that idea when you even look at the language that's used here. There, um, there's a word that's used here for save, or the word for pulling specifically. It's a word, harpazo, in the Greek. It's used 14 times in the New Testament. You look at different places in which it's used, it could be rendered as seized by force in certain places. You see that, for instance, in Matthew 11, 12, John 6, 5. It could be rendered as snatching. You see that in John chapter 10, verse 12. It could uh, reference being caught up to meet Christ in the clouds. We see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. But this is what I want you to see. In the case of these people, that language connotes that they, because they're so entrenched in false teaching, they're so entrenched in apostate thinking, that in these cases, you're not necessarily supposed to handle them with kid gloves or undue sensitivity. They need to be rescued. This is like a rescue operation. This doesn't mean that you throw mercy and compassion to the wind. It does not mean that. But it means that sometimes a stern rebuke or a stern warning is what is needed at that moment. Although the situation isn't apples to apples, I think of how, by God's grace, my cousin Joey years ago had come to know um, Jesus Christ. It was a unique way in which I evangelized that the situation just kind of presented itself in a unique way. And I think it kind of fits this bill, although his context was rather unique. Some of you might remember me telling you this story that my cousin had been, um, you know, just a dear first cousin to me for so many years. I came to know Christ, and he would come down from upstate, and we would talk together about the gospel. 
He had questions about the Bible. We would talk about it together. And my cousin has such a, uh, a dynamite personality, if you will. He's so personable. He was personable before he knew Christ. He's even more personable since coming to know Christ. And he never showed any sign that the conversations that we were having together were bothering him. But then one day, his mom, my mom's sister, uh, she told my mom, you know, Joey doesn't want to come down to um, Staten Island anymore because he says George is a fanatic. And then my mom told me that, and I'm like, Joey? I'm like, we're having conversations for so long. Like, everything looks like it's going well. Like, we, we hung out together. We talked together about Christ. Well, then Joey ends up, uh, sometime after that, he ends up getting arrested. Um, he was driving on a New York State Thruway. Uh, if, if I remember correctly, he was doing 68 when he ought to have been doing 65. He was pulled over, and a police officer asked to search the car and found a weapon in the glove compartment of the car. So my cousin, he ends up going to um, jail that night. He has one phone call that evening, and with that one phone call, he called me. And we talked together, and he was saying he was concerned. He, had, he knew he had an upcoming court date. He was concerned that he wasn't going to be able to see the family anymore when holidays came and so on. Obviously concerned for his own life beyond that. And I spoke to him in a way that I don't, I don't know if I've spoken to too many people in this way in sharing the gospel before. I told him, I said, Joey, I said, don't worry about the court date. Don't worry about that. I said, I'm going to pray. I'm going to reach out to people that I know pray, and we're going to pray about the court date. It's amazing what God ended up doing in the court date, but that's a little bit of an aside. I'll get there maybe in a moment. I said, you just make up your mind tonight what you are going to do with Jesus Christ. I said, for too long, you've played both ends against the middle. I said, you make up your mind tonight. If Jesus is Lord, you serve him. If you don't believe he's Lord, then forsake him. But you make up your mind tonight, and you let me know tomorrow what you're going to do. We ended up speaking the next day, and it's one of the most radical transformations I've ever seen in my life. My cousin came to know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We would have Bible studies on consecutive days following. He's now serving in pastoral ministry. He is just an amazing, uh, amazing man, fruitful in so many ways, an amazing husband, amazing uh, son to his mom and dad, and I'm just so thankful for the work that God did in his life. But see, in that case, right, it warranted a stern kind of conversation. Make up your mind. What are you going to do with Christ? He knew I love him. He knew I wasn't being harsh or judgmental. It just it got to a point you need to make a decision here. And for some who are so entrenched in false teaching, right? It's like they're in a burning building, if you will, right? My cousin who's here who's a firefighter, who would know about that? And what do you do? Like, you go and you pull them out. You go to rescue them. And sometimes the language that we use needs to be a little bit more forthright. Look, I love you, but tomorrow's not promised to anybody. And you need to decide by the grace of God what you're going to do with Jesus Christ. Don't put it off forever. Don't even necessarily put it off to tomorrow because you don't know if tomorrow's coming. So that's the second group um, that's uh, to be reached out to here. And Christians, amazingly, although there is only one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy, James chapter 4, verse 12, yet we get to participate as instruments in that saving, right? The language here, but others save with fear, right? Paul became all things to all men, that by all means he might save some. James uses similar language in James 5. We're not the ones doing the saving ultimately, but we get to be instruments in God's hands, participating in pulling people out of the fire. And these people were in such a state, notice what the language says, but others saved with fear, pulling them out of the fire. The language appears to connote that it's as though they have one foot in the fire of the judgment to come. And you get to be one who gets to be the hand of the Lord, even as the Lord wrenched um, Joshua the high priest, who was in a representative role of Israel in Zechariah 3.2. 
saying, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Jude, doubtless, as we've seen, uh, a student of the Old Testament who had so many Old Testament scriptures on his mind, probably drawing from that language that's also used in Amos 4.11, you get to be a participant in that, though God is the ultimate cause of the rescuing. Then there's one other group that's referenced here in verse 23. At least when you look at the um, older manuscripts, you kind of put it together, and it's those who have been polluted by apostate teaching in one way or another. Um, the older manuscripts say, and, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. All right, so there are some who have been so affected by apostate teaching that it's as though their garments have been defiled. And so just walking through the instruction here, Jude is saying, and on some have mercy with fear. So you're still to show mercy to them. You're still to show compassion. You don't become cruel and heartless and merciless. You still show compassion. But when you do show compassion, you are to do so with fear. You are to exercise great carefulness and discernment. What's driving the fear? I think most likely in the context, what's driving the fear is the fear of becoming contaminated yourself in some way. You may reach out to some people that are involved in some things that maybe you, you start reaching out to them, you start hearing about more about what they're involved in, and all of a sudden you become a little bit soiled, if you will. You start thinking ways you didn't think before. You start acting in ways you didn't act before. You start going places you didn't go before. And little by little, you're pulled and you're getting soiled. And so Jude is saying, on some have mercy, but you have to do so with fear. You have to exercise great care and carefulness. The language here is rather pretty strong. But again, the idea is here, fearing what? I think the idea is being fear of being spiritually defiled. You know, I, I think um, one, one writer had used the example, I don't remember the exact context of, of it, but used poison ivy. As an example here, the way in which poison ivy can easily spread if you touch somebody who has poison ivy. And you don't want to be somebody who exercises more carefulness with somebody who has poison ivy than you do with somebody who's so entrenched in sin that their garments are soiled. And as a Christian, you don't want to exercise more carefulness with something in the physical realm than you do in the spiritual realm. You want to exercise carefulness. You belong to Christ. Um, I think one of the things here, uh, Thomas Schreiner made, I think, a great point you know, you reach out to someone who's entangled with sin, uh, you may, you run the risk of being entangled as well. And he made the point of saying, one of the ways this can happen, mercy can soon become acceptance. That's one of the ways it can happen. You want to show mercy, you show mercy long enough, right? And you just, all of a sudden, you're just not moved by the sin that you ought to have been moved by before. So you want to be careful of that. Just to unpack the language here, the, the word for garment is a Greek word. Um, to use one lexicon, speaks of a tunic or an undergarment usually worn under the skin. The word for polluted, strong word, it could speak of that which is stained or soiled or defiled. Uh, the imagery appears to be that of a person's clothing, even possibly their undergarment, being defiled by the pollution that comes from somebody's flesh. That appears to be the physical image that Jude is drawing from. Now you look in Zechariah 3.2, interestingly, when you look there, 3.2, Zechariah 3.2, you look at 3.3, 3.4, when Joshua, the high priest, is described as having filthy garments. Well, the word that's used there, an, an adjective that's derived from a noun that refers to human excrement. Uh, so we might be talking about really connoting filthiness. Um, so the picture here is one of... Um, a spiritual, a temporal picture of a spiritual reality that ought to move us. If those physical images move us, 
perceiving such defilement through the lens of the Spirit ought to move us as well. To what? To not show mercy? No. But to exercise great caution and fear and carefulness. If you are too cavalier and you don't exercise carefulness, or you think that you can't be tempted in such a way, this will never happen to me, you run the risk of being in the Galatians 6 kind of context where you might end up falling into the thing that you're trying to pull somebody out of. And you don't want to do that. So we see here that Christians are to reach out. As part of being on the offense, you love and you reach out. But you exercise carefulness, going back, you exercise courage, and you exercise compassion. Quick notes about this, little qualifier here. Contextually, who are the Christians who are to be reaching out? Those who are building themselves up in their most holy faith individually and corporately, right? So, of course, any Christian could do it, but if you want to do it in a safe way, you're a Christian who's building yourself up individually, you're praying, you're reading the Word of God, and you're around other believers who are building you up and praying with you and for you, and you're looking for the return of Christ. That's verses 20 and 21, and that leads into 22 and 23. Also, I'll just go through this quickly so you can understand. Don't let Jude, verses 22 and 23, keep you from remembering how other verses of Scripture will inform how you are to deal with such situations as well. Right? How do you deal with false teachers? Right? 2 John chapter, one chapter, 2 John verses 10 and 11 speak to that. How are you to deal with somebody who's a Christian in a local church, professes to be a brother, yet continues in or sister, and continues in unrepentant sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, deal with that. How do you deal with somebody who's divisive? Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, deal with that. How do you deal with somebody who continues to disregard the gospel message that you're giving them, and they're getting angry about that? Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, speaks to that. So what I'm saying here is that you need other scriptures to inform how you handle situations like this. Reach out. This is your grid right here. But that grid is also informed by other scriptures as well. Well, quick application before we get to verses 24 and 25 briefly is who can you reach out to? Who can you reach out to? You know, last week I told you that my plan was to mention um, today. I wanted to ask you the question, how did you do with last week's message? How did you do with applying, practicing the things we spoke about last week? Well, whether you had a great week or not a great week, today's a new day and you have a new week before you and you have the opportunity to pursue those disciplines. Today I want to ask you, who can you reach out to? Maybe later today. Who can you reach out to? All right, as we come to verse 24 and verse 25, we'll see what God can and will do first in verse 24. Verse 24 we read, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. Many New Testament epistles end with a benediction. Jude ends here with a doxology. A doxology. A word of glory, or a word of praise to God. And what is he praising God for? Now to Him who is able. Language that we've seen the Apostle Paul use. In Romans 16.27, the Apostle Paul celebrates the fact that God is the one who is able to establish His people. 16.25. To the church of Ephesus, he wrote, Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think. God is able, and that is to be celebrated, and Jude says here, He's able to keep you from stumbling. Stumbling here, though in other places, could refer to sin in general, doesn't refer to that. It refers to stumbling in the sense of falling away from the faith. 
falling irrevocably, irretrievably, becoming an apostate, God is able to keep you from that kind of stumbling. Now, let me briefly say, somebody might say, as I was thinking through this, I thought of somebody saying the objection, well, just because God is able to do it doesn't mean that he will do it. God is able to do a lot of things. But just because God is able to do something doesn't mean that God will do it. And somebody might even say, okay, I'll grant you that God is willing to do it. So he's willing and able to do it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he will do it. And I want to tell you, in light of this text, but in light of other New Testament texts of Scripture, I think Jude is celebrating the fact that not only that God is able, not only that God is willing, but that God has purposely, noticeably in the Word of God, revealed that it is his will to do it. I want you to see that. I'll do that relatively briefly. Uh, First, I don't think Jude is ending this epistle with a doxology to God concerning something that's ultimately not in his hands. I want you to celebrate the fact that God is able, but we don't know if he will. (laughs) We don't know if he wants to, and even if he wants to, we don't know if he will. But we're praising that he's able. I don't think he's ending the epistle with that. Um, So that's one thing I would say. He's not celebrating the fact that ultimately the responsibility is in your hand, and we're celebrating that. I don't think he's doing that. And I say that based upon many, many scriptures. This could be right now, what I'm about to do, a message in itself. But I'm going to give you a quick synopsis of the case that I would make. And it's the tip of the iceberg. It's not the iceberg. Remember, the will of the Father is that the Son not lose any that the Father has given him. You see that explicitly, repeatedly, in John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. It's the Father's will that the Son not lose any. And Jesus always did the will of the Father, and he always will. Jesus himself said in John chapter 10, um, alongside of what he said there, John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. You hear that? I give them eternal life. What's the result? They never perish. You think of the language from 1 John 5. All who are born of God overcome the world. Jesus continues, and he says, Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Think of Jude and what he was dealing with with the apostates. They're not going to snatch this one or those ones out of my hand. He says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So it's not happening. No one's snatching a believer out of Christ's hand, out of the Father's hand. All that the Father gives to him will come to him. He will in no wise cast them out. He gives them eternal life, and they will never perish. But there's more. Remember, this is the tip of the iceberg. Philippians 1.6, Paul said, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So he begins the good work. You look at Acts chapter 11. It's God who grants grace to repent. Acts 11.18, right? You look at um, how God works in the lives of individuals. He opens the hearts of people to believe, even as he opened the heart of Lydia to receive the things spoken of by Paul. Acts 16.14, You look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. We remember that a believer is saved by grace and not of themselves. We remember that James wrote, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. So the God who began the good work, Paul is saying in Philippians 1, 6, all those texts speak to him beginning it, he will complete it. So when Jude says that God is able, that truth is to be celebrated in light of the fact that not only that he is able or that he is willing, but that he has willed to keep his people to make sure they cross the finish line. It's his revealed will. And there's plenty of other scriptures that could be used to support that. But I want to show you this. What's on the other side of the finish line? I know I say this a lot. I have a lot of favorite verses of scripture, right? They're like, oh, they're all my favorite verses of scripture. 
But I have a verse here, part of a verse, that at least for me is in a category of its own among my favorites. Um, And we get to that in the second half here of verse 24. And to present you before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. So leading into what I want to tell you is one of my favorite verses of Scripture, part of the verse. So there's this presentation that's going to come. When the people of God are presented faultless. Uh, that's, that's a word that's used in the New Testament with regards to um, offerings that were unblemished. It's used to speak of Jesus as the perfect, unblemished offering of giving himself. It's used to speak of the bride of Christ on that day, without spot or blemish, being presented to Christ. It's this beautiful picture. Though our faults, they are many. His mercy is more, you could say. And I will be faultless. You're not going to have to walk around like an ex-con, if you will, in heaven. Like, remembering, like, this is my record. This is what I've done. I'm just forever that person and forever guilty. No, you're faultless. You've been robed with the very righteousness of Christ. And no matter how many times I read the next part, it continues to surprise me. And, And I know that. I just keep reading and it keeps surprising me. I told some of you about it last week when we were talking after uh, service. To present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. When I think about people entering into the presence of God, my mind starts to think of different scriptures, right? You think of Job, right? Who repented in sackcloth and ashes when the Lord spoke to him from a whirlwind, Job 42. I think of Isaiah in the year that King Uzziah died where he saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. He saw the glory, the glorious one on his throne, and he was mindful of his sinfulness. Woe unto me, I'm a sinful man. He he thought of his lips and his speech and so on. The examples could go on. Peter, I mean, Peter, in in Luke 5, depart from me, says to Jesus, I'm a sinful man. John, right, when he gets the vision in Revelation, when he sees Christ, he falls at his feet as though dead. I get standing before the presence of God with exceeding reverence and awe. I get that. But to think of being presented to Christ with exceeding joy, abundant joy, that is amazing. Not mindful of my sin and my sinfulness, which being in the presence of the Holy God, if we were in that state now, like John or like Peter, we would be mindful of that. But we're going to be presented to him in that moment, faultless, no sin, perfect righteousness imputed to us because of what Jesus has done. And what is the reaction going to be when you're presented to Christ? Yes, I'm sure reverent awe but exceeding joy, exceeding joy. If you have joy to use language from Peter that's inexpressible and full of glory now, this joy that's awaiting you, when you see him and you know, you know it now by faith, but when by sight you see how much he loves you and you don't have to fear. He welcomes you with open arms, as it were. You know you've crossed the finish line. You see Christ. You're safe. You're loved. You're forgiven. You're his. I think that's one of the most exciting um, things to look forward to. All fear is gone. The shame is gone because the sin has been paid for. And the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to his people. That is, I would encourage everyone in this room, if you don't know Christ, that is the prize at the end of this road for every believer. To see the Son of God, to be in the presence of God, to be forgiven of your sins now, but then to enjoy the presence of his glory. Not have to fear, rightfully so, not have to fear the wrath to come. Because Christ saved you from the wrath to come. If you don't, if you don't receive him, there is wrath to come because you and I are sinners. We've sinned against the holy God. 
but receive the ransom of the Son of God so that you might look forward to that moment, having been forgiven of your sins, positionally now faultless, being presented before the throne of His glory. And what are you going to have in that moment? Exceeding joy. Praise the Lord indeed. So we come to the last verse, (laughs) which is a fitting word of praise. I'll walk through it very um, briefly. Verse 25. To God our Savior... To God our Savior. You oftentimes see the Father identified as Savior. We study that in 1 Timothy. There's a lot of references that can be given. Earlier manuscripts read, To the only God our Savior. Quick note. Jude lived in a world that was not only pluralistic, but polytheistic. A world that thought, at least some people did, that Caesar Augustus was both God and Emperor. He's not shying away from biblical monotheism here. He's like, there's one God, and that God is our Savior. That God is our Savior. Celebrating that God. Note the fact that he's Savior. He's the one who keeps his people, and he's their Savior. All the more his people should have assurance as they contend for the faith. He goes on and he says, in the next line, the New King James says, who is alone wise? That's biblically true. We see that in Romans 16, 27. To God alone wise be glory forever. Wisdom proceeds from God. All wisdom is from God. God is the fountainhead of all wisdom. But that may not be what's said here in the original text. In the original text, as rendered in um, the the footnotes in the New King James or in the NASB Bible, what may be said here is a great statement about Christ. So, to God our Savior, or to the only God our Savior, then we get to this likely old manuscript inclusion here, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's about to offer praise to God our Savior. How do you do that? What's the only way you could really do that? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. The only way you come to the Father, John 14, 6, is through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the only right way in which we praise the Father is through Jesus Christ our Lord. Beautiful picture of the Trinity. The Father, right, think of creation, creates through his Son and by the Spirit. And as we come to God, we come in the Spirit through the Son to the Father. Beautiful picture. To this God belongs glory. The word for glory, doxa, can speak of splendor or majesty. Here within the context of praise, maybe honor is is what's connoted here. The word majesty connotes greatness and the preeminence of God. Megalosune is the word in the Greek. Connotes preeminence, greatness. So he's glorious. He is to be honored because he's preeminent. He goes on, he says dominion. Greek word for that, kratos, speaks of might or power. To this one belongs glory, greatness and preeminence. To this one belongs power and might. And then the next word, power in some translations, authority in others. I think authority gets it more. Exousia. To this one belongs jurisdiction. He is sovereign. There is nothing outside of his jurisdiction. How long has it been that way? Both now and forever. But wait, the older manuscripts include one phrase that I think is worth noting. Before all time. He's always been glorious. That, by the way, might be a witness, a textual witness to a reality that many theologians have been convinced of for a long time, but a textual witness to God being outside of time and time beginning with creation. But before time began, now and forever, he's always been and he always will be glorious, great. He's always had power and he's always had authority. So to him be glory for all of those things, both now and forever. Amen.
You know, when we say amen in English, you look it up in dictionaries, right? When we say amen in English, we're basically giving assent to what's said. Like we're coming in agreement, like amen, I, I, I agree with that. Could also connote, let it be so. That can connote that as well. When you see amen, amen used in the scriptures, when you see that kind of language, it's like a stamp of verification. It's true. And you can imagine if Jude was reading this or preaching this when, when he was first kind of unpacking it, wherever he did, and then when he wrote it, you can imagine the people when they heard it, hearing the truth about who God is and what he does and saying in response to the amen, amen. So what do the people of God say when God is presented as being the one who keeps his people, when God is presented as being glorious and great and powerful and having all authority, both now and forever and before all time, the people of God say, Amen. Amen to the amen. It is true. It is true. What an amazing journey through this epistle. Thanks be to God. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are more glorious than we could even imagine. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that one day, one day we will get to see in your very presence will be the blessed are the pure of heart by your grace, not by our own, Lord, the pure in heart who see God. That we will get to see your Son as he is. We long, Heavenly Father, for that moment and the thought of being presented in such a way that we have not only an abundance of awe, but exceeding joy is precious beyond measure. But I thank you, Heavenly Father, that what we believe now by faith one day will become sight. In the meantime, Heavenly Father, we pray that for us as a church corporately and as individuals, Lord, that you might continue to help us to contend for the faith, being engaged in those things that build us and each other up, reaching out with compassion and courage and carefulness, knowing that you are the one who keeps his people, protect us from any presumptuous uh, presumption, Heavenly Father, but may we have great joy in light of that blessed reality. And may you find us, Heavenly Father, whether or not we're saying the words of this doxology, praising you for who you are, our glorious and great and powerful, supreme God, who has always been who you are. (laughs) You are who you are. We love you. May you continue to work in us and conform us to the image of the Son who loved us and bought us, purchasing us from our sins by paying for them with his own blood and then rising from the grave three days later. Thank you for Jesus Christ. We offer you this praise and glory through Christ Jesus our Lord and it's in his name we pray, amen.